Good evening, everybody. Good evening. Uh, welcome to the London School of Economics for tonight's uh, Polis Lecture by Lionel Barber, the editor of the FT. My name is Charlie Beckett. I'm a professor here in the Department of uh, Media and Communications, and I'm also director of Polis, which is the LSE's journalism think tank. Um, the title of this uh, lecture was actually originally suggested by me, um, and I'm delighted that a great and very rigorous editor like Lionel uh, deemed that it was worthy uh, for his lecture. I am now a professor, but for 20 years uh, I was a journalist, and you never really stop being a journalist, uh, so perhaps uh, that shows I haven't lost it entirely, Lionel. Um, journalism is, I think, the most enjoyable of careers, uh, but my work here in uh, the university is inspired by the idea that journalism is also one of the most important of careers. Uh, in our 24-7 information-saturated world, uh, news media is more vital, I think, than ever before to help us lead happy lives and to build good societies. And this is both the worst and the best of times uh, for journalism. We all know about the business model crisis. We all know about the swathes of bad information out there on the internet. And we know about the increasing uh, manipulation of news for negative ends. But as Lionel will describe, in part at least, it's also something of a golden age uh, for journalism in terms of the reach, the creativity, and the interactivity with the audience that is now possible. The Financial Times, under Lionel's leadership, has been typical of the best. We know about the FT's traditional virtue of accurate, intelligent uh, business and financial journalism, but to that, it's added a whole range of very excellent content in new formats, from data visualisation uh, to great interviews, superb photojournalism, and, of course, the unmissable How to Spend It magazine with its invaluable advice on which private jet or luxury yacht to buy. As an increasingly international brand as well, of course, um, that represents uh, the finest of modern, liberal, independent, critical and innovative journalism, I think that the FT is arguably as important a player in the global marketplace for information and ideas as something like the BBC. So, now let's hear uh, from its editor and how he believes it can carry out that mission of making news for the new world. Please welcome Lionel Barber. Ladies and gentlemen, distinguished guests, good evening. Or as we say in Japanese... Konbanwa. <laughs> Thank you, Professor Charlie Beckett, Polis, and the LSE for inviting me to deliver this prestigious lecture. You and your students do great work, and I'm honoured to play a small part. Tonight, I want to talk about the news business in a world where the pace of change is accelerating, the challenge from digital insurgents growing, and the opportunities for trusted brands like the Financial Times never greater. Let me repeat that. 
never greater. As Charlie said, there's plenty of talk these days, still, about crisis in the newspaper industry. I want to talk about opportunities for success. Not just in the home market, but worldwide. Because in a networked world where speed, immediacy, and interactivity are given, scale, global scale, is the ultimate prize. Uh, but first, a little detour. This has been, as you all know in this audience, a momentous year for news. The Greek sovereign debt crisis, the Chinese market meltdown, the Middle East refugee exodus, and a relatively minor story involving the sale of the Financial Times to Nikkei, the Japanese business news giant. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I have covered plenty of mergers and acquisitions in my near 40-year career. But let me tell you, it's a whole different story when your employer actually makes the lead on the homepage. There's been plenty of speculation about what the FT-Nikkei deal portends. I say this. New owners, new partners, same FT. The FT remains committed to the gold standard of journalistic excellence. We will continue to report without fear and without favor. And we will continue to be an industry pioneer, blazing trails where others fear to tread. Nikkei paid 40 times earnings, 40 times earnings for the Financial Times. Why? In two words, brand matters. Brand really does matter. Five words. <laughs> Last word on the FT Nikkei deal for now. You're not writing it down? Okay. <laughs> Last word for now. I believe... In a, word, in a world of nimble, deep-pocketed, tech-savvy rivals, we're stronger together than apart. Now, in the past decade, the media landscape has transformed beyond recognition. As Marty Barron, the Washington Post executive editor, reminded us, in a thoughtful lecture earlier this year, it is easy to forget just how much has changed in the past 10 years. 
Apple introduced the smartphone in June 2007. Today, more than 2.6 billion people use smartphones, allowing every user to access anything at any moment at the touch of a button. Facebook was founded in 2004. Now, it has more than 1.5 billion monthly active users. That's half of the online global population. And Facebook has moved into the news distribution and video business. Twitter was founded in 2006. 500 million tweets are sent every day, including, full disclosure, three or four, or maybe five, from my own account early in the morning and late at night. WhatsApp launched its messaging app in 2009. Five years later, with barely 50 employees, it was sold to Facebook for $19 billion. And together with WeChat, WhatsApp highlights the growing power of instant messaging and chat apps in modern media. And I saw that firsthand last week, watching the texting phenomenon during a visit to Saudi Arabia. So behind these raw statistics lies a single unifying theme, the impact of high-speed broadband with its ability to instantly download photos and video and connect mobile to the web. The broadband revolution means the structural shift from print to digital is yesterday's news. Today's news is the rise of mobile. By some estimates, around 50% of all news consumption happens on smartphones, and it's growing. Eric Schmidt of Google has a simple test. If you aren't one of a handful of apps on the home screen of your audience's smartphone, you may as well be the last. So for the FT, as with other news brands, leading news brands, we can no longer rely on people coming to us. We need to reach them with the relevant news, analysis, and comment where, when, and how they want it. News on demand, if you like. I'll credit you, Rupert Murdoch, for that. Just. And news on demand is shifting the balance of power, not just for mainstream media, but also for the tech giants themselves. Social media now sends almost as much traffic to news sites as Google. 36% versus 41%. Now, traffic diversion on this scale poses 
a dilemma for publishers. The big beasts in tech, and they are very big, say they have no interest in investing in content. The reality is that they have no need to if they create go-to platforms for publishers' content. Take Facebook's newly announced Notify app, or Apple's News app. Together, they represent exciting opportunities for publishers to connect to a wider audience. They can help us expand exponentially. On the other hand, if mishandled, these new platforms present a route to disintermediation, to surrendering the direct relationship which lies at the heart of the FT's pay-for-content subscription model. Indeed, it threatens all subscription business models. So news publishers are wrestling, all of them, with the reach versus return challenge right now. But imagine a future where news providers, especially free sites reliant on advertising, exist almost entirely off platforms such as Facebook or Apple. Why go to the effort, never mind the expense, of building and maintaining anything more than a skeletal site when your output can be viewed much more efficiently on Facebook or Apple? Why bother running your own business, your own ad business, when the tech companies will do it for you and give you the revenue? In short, is it a stretch to predict the the tech titans will own the media without actually having to pay for the message. Not so fast. Almost a decade ago, Team FT made the right choice. We declined to accept the fashionable argument, so often heard in Silicon Valley, that free content was the only way to go. We knew that our content had value. Why wouldn't it, given we had a network of more than 100 foreign correspondents and a world-class group of commentators and analysts and reporters? So we created a new business model based around frequency of use, the so-called meter model. This allowed people to taste FT content and the power of the brand for free before registering then as a user and then finally subscribing as a customer. Today, we've gone a step further. We're now looking at engagement. How readers are using FT journalism in terms of consuming and sharing. Today, 
a new audience development team led by, led by Renee Kaplan, and she's here in the audience, sits in the heart of the newsroom. That, ladies and gentlemen, is a game-changing move. Now, all these changes that I'm describing reflect what Ken Doctor of Newsonomics, who's a brilliant analyst in America, has called Paywall 2.0. In the old days, not so old, news publishers tended to emphasize the quantity of readers represented by clicks. Nowadays, they're shifting emphasis to audience engagement. How and how much people are actually consuming content and how often. Paywall 2.0 is a qualitative step forward. We've developed new metrics based around recency, frequency, and volume. What do I mean by that? Well, when did someone last visit FT.com? How often do they come back? How many of our stories do they read? According to these metrics, engagement online at the FT is up by 20% across B2B and B2C year-on-year and year-to-date. And thanks to authoritative news and commentary, such as the Lex financial column, readers of the FT, FT online, spend three times as long on FT.com as other news media sites. Now, just to sum this up and give you the broader picture of the, the huge change that we've seen over the last 10 years when I've been editor. The FT back in November 2005 had 420,000-ish newspaper circulation and 76,000 digital subscribers. Today, we have three quarters of a million circulation, more than 70% digital. And we're targeting now, one million paying readers. Now, just as we've transformed our business model, so we have fundamentally changed our editorial operation. The print-centric newsroom is no more. For us, the future is text plus. This is an exciting combination of words, graphics, and image tailored for the age of social media, where readers can comment, recommend, and share our journalism across platforms and national boundaries. Today, we think and act digital first. That means conceiving of our news and views in digital form, whether for the smartphone, tablet, or desktop. Now, if you're a little bit confused here, and this sounds a bit like too much theory, here's how it works in practice, as shown by some of this year's best text plus 
FD journalism. <coughs> Cameras, lights. This is the frontier between South Africa and Mozambique. In recent decades, thousands of people have poured across it every year. Some of the people coming have been plying a far deadlier train. The idea was to say, right, we're going to try and make people happier. So, smart journalism with global reach. That's enough of advertorial. Sorry. Just thought I'd anyway, this digital first text plus approach has actually forced us to push through a really wrenching change in the newsroom at the FT. Uh, because, in effect, what we've done is invert the traditional newspaper production process. What does this mean? Well, first, we've moved from a news factory producing multiple editions through the night to a news broadcaster, a bit like television, with schedules on FT.com tailored to reader demand early in the morning, lunchtime and evening around the world. And we can do that with newsrooms, London or Hong Kong, London and New York through the various time zones. Second, we've shifted resources from night to day and streamlined newspaper production, bringing forward print deadlines and adopting a single international edition for Asia, Europe, the Middle East, and America. Third, we've separated the editing and production of the newspaper from the news desks under the guidance of a new managing editor, FT Newspaper. And I see the New York Times has just adopted a similar model. I'm just saying. <laughs> Fourth, We've centralised the news desk structure and overall commissioning and created the new role of story producer to develop this digital form of stories that I've been describing. So, we are steadily moving towards a system where the success of our journalism can be measured in real time in terms of reader appeal and engagement. This is a valuable insight for advertisers, but also an important advance for a subscription business like the Financial Times. 
Does this mean that the traditional role of the journalist as reporter and curator of the news is undermined? Does software trump the power of editors? Or, whisper it very softly, the editor? Are the robots taking over? The answer is an unequivocal no. No. But the balance of power is shifting in the newsroom. Journalists can no longer afford to ignore the new tools which connect them to their readers more closely than they ever might have imagined. Certainly for this journalist. Of course, their skills as wordsmiths remain as valuable as ever. So too the judgments which influence the selection and the weight of a story. But new skills are required for the new world. New skills are required for the networked world. A willingness to work with data and moving image and text, the text, as well as the pure, old-fashioned, written word. And for those of us in the news business committed to success, that flexibility requires a different mindset. My friend Mark Anderson, one of the top venture capitalists in Silicon Valley, had this to say about the state of modern media. Today's news organizations, he says, are spending 90% of their effort and resources on playing defense. I could say defense, but he doesn't say it like that, so he says defense. Just saying. They are protecting the old artifacts and business model rather than going on the offense and making the future. So how do we see things at the FT? Well, confession here, I used to play fly half at rugby at school and university. And as I'm, my teammates will testify, I was a whole lot better playing offense than defense. Pretty useless at tackling. But to play offense, to make the future, journalists need to be open and curious. Because we're not immune to the forces of change coursing through our economies and societies. Newspapers and news organizations have a civic purpose, but they do not have a divine right to exist. In the networked age, the most valuable qualities in media will be adaptability, hunger, and a relentless commitment to innovation and quality. Steve Jobs epitomized this ethos. Just read his inspiring 2005 commencement address at Stanford University. And this, my favorite passage. Your time is limited, so don't waste it living someone else's life. Don't be trapped by dogma. 
which is living with the results of other people's thinking. Don't let the noises of others' opinion drown you out, drown out your own inner voice. And most important, have the courage to follow your heart and your intuition. Now today, we journalists are being forced to revisit long-cherished assumptions about the news business. First, we thought we owned the content business. But today, everybody's in the content business. Not just individual bloggers and self-publishers, but also companies and corporations. Look at the new advertorial news streams, such as Goldman Sachs podcasts, or GE's special branded corporate news on innovation. The separation between commercial and editorial is distinct and sacrosanct. Advertising can never be allowed to influence directly editorial copy. But hard and fast views are breaking down in the face of declining print advertising and the rise of ad-blocking technology, which poses a serious threat to digital advertising models. Media publishers are turning to new sources of revenue, such as content marketing and de facto corporate-sponsored editorial copy. Now, as long as safeguards are in place, I believe these potential conflicts of interest can be resolved. The second related assumption is that news publishers thought that they would always serve as the trusted source, handing down wisdom a bit like Moses with his tablets of stone. But today, in an age where information is instantly accessible, readers can adopt that famous Reagan-esque motto, trust but verify. That means that media publishers find themselves held to account as never before. Now that does offer challenges, but also great opportunities for trusted brands like the FT. Because we've long recognized that we are actually in a two-way dialogue with readers. We also understand that we need to have a robust, independent means of resolving readers' complaints. Last year, after much debate in the wake of the Leveson inquiry, the FT chose, for now, not to join IPSO, the industry, the new industry body set up to replace the Press Complaints Commission. Instead, we created the new post of Editorial Complaints Commissioner reporting to an independent panel, including our CEO, John Ridding, and two former Fleet Street editors, Baroness Wheatcroft and Ian Hargreaves. The appointment of Greg Callis, an experienced barrister, created a new locus of authority in the newsroom, albeit, and it's important qualification, strictly in the appellate role. I, readers with complaints first go to editorial and then on appeal to Greg. 
Earlier this evening, I spoke, to our, I spoke about our commitment to the gold standard in journalism. I believe the appointment of an independent editorial complaints commissioner demonstrates just that. It underlines the value of fresh thinking, of avoiding being trapped by dogma. Ladies and gentlemen, the birth of the new is often neither obvious nor pain-free. Yet when I look around, I see a world of infinite possibilities. In the next few years, journalism will redefine itself, largely through the power of technology. Where journalists once drove software, and remember, confession here, how we all wanted to micromanage the design of our content management systems, just remember, software will increasingly drive journalism. And media companies will increasingly become tech companies. At the FT, we want to be in the vanguard of change. So as we prepare to embark on a new journey with our new partner, Nikkei, I say to you all here tonight, come aboard, because it's going to be quite a ride. Thank you. Great. Thanks very much, Lionel. Um, obviously, I'd like to get some questions from uh, the audience. But before I do that, I want to ask you one myself, which is quite simply, um, your vision of the FT's uh, journalism is you know, impressive and your um, desire to stick up, uh, stand up rather, <laughs> against the, um, you know, the digital intermediaries uh, is also you know, courageous and brave. I, I, I never said I wanted to pick a fight. No, no, stand up to, you know, just um, hold your ground. And in a way, you know, the evidence is that you've, you've been successful um, so far. I just wondered how much the sort of principles that you outlined and the vision that you see, how much is that for other people? Because in a sense, the FT is in a privileged position. You've got terribly well-heeled readers, generally. Um, you've got a great brand. Uh, what about all the other uh, news organisations? Do you think that they should be doing the same things? Because obviously they're all doing different things, aren't they? Some are doing an open, free, others have gone behind a much stricter paywall. Um, what do you think about your, your rivals, as it were? Well, I, I like to stick to my knitting and not preach to others. Um, you know, as you say, we are in a slightly different space. We're a premium brand. We've got global reach. We've got many more foreign correspondents than anybody else other than maybe the New York Times. And, you know, it is for others to figure out what, they, what their business model should be. It's absolutely clear, and it's been clear for at least, to my mind, 10 years, that journalists, that news publishers need to find some ways of monetizing uh, that terrible word, getting people to pay for what they produce. And I think it's, it's, e it's slightly easier if you are publishing material where, to be very, very simple, you're either helping people to s make a bit of money or maybe not to lose a lot of money. 
Whereas if you're in the general news business, you risk being commoditized. So it's a bit harder. But it's not a given that just because you're in the business journalism business, uh, that you're going to succeed. Remember, Business Week, the American news magazine, was sold for about 10 bucks uh, to, 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 to Bloomberg. Uh, it's been reinvented. So, so I would be careful. I just think everybody really needs to figure out where the value is in what you are producing and then figure out ways to, um, to monetize that. And obviously, if you talked about the relationship with these tech giants, then they will do the job for you, but you're going to risk being disintermediated in terms of the relationship with the customer. I'm so glad you used the word disintermediate because I've used it in my course this term, and I'm delighted that a real person is using it as well. <laughs> I can reassure my students. Yeah, I almost didn't pronounce it properly, though, so... Uh, it's good enough for me. Okay, so would anybody like to ask some questions? We've got microphones, so let's start on the left, as it were. The, the, there's a gentleman there, halfway down. Yeah, not with the laptop. And then who's on the right? Uh, guy in the white shirt. Let's start there. You're next, Nico. Just say who you are, please. Yeah, go ahead. Robert Farrago. What do you see as the role of blogs in a, a free blogs in a pay-for paper? Do you say blogs or vlogs? Blogs. Blogs, right. Well, uh, they've got to have something to say. And I worry sometimes about blogs that are written at 3 a.m. in the morning by somebody who can't sleep. Or, you know, I think the identity is very important. We do have... Uh, we do have some selective bloggers, but I prefer to call them as commentators, like David Allen Green on law, and he did, he's done some fantastic work. Um, we also have Gavin Davis, who used to be the chairman of the BBC Board of Governors, Goldman Sachs economist. We've got Nick Butler, again, specialist XBP. So we want specialist bloggers, if you like. And I, I just worry sometimes if it's just a kind of, um, it, it's not edited, it, it's not, it's just put out there. Um, so I would say bloggers, commentators for the FT, given we have a lot of specialist knowledge, it, there's a high bar to just kind of join our camp. Um, it's interesting that Andrew Sullivan kind of didn't make it with his model, um, even though he's got a fabulous brand and he's a great writer, he's kind of, he almost, he, he didn't put up an a, a gravestone for blogging, but I think his, the fact the Daily Dish didn't make it is, is maybe significant. Uh, Nikia McDonald of Media Futures. Um, I was interested in one of your last comments that software will increasingly drive journalism and media companies become tech companies. And I'm interested in that partly because there is a broad view that technology drives change in society, but people adopt technologies and businesses adopt technologies for pre-existing reasons and I wonder what you thought the changes in business globally and in society are which are changing the ways that we want news and the way we relate to it just for instance the idea of trust the decreasing trust with politicians and the media must have driven people away from mainstream news outlets or the rise of the you know, personal politics um, it's fragmented the way in which we relate to opinion and so on. But what are you seeing as the main drivers changing the way people relate to the FT and business and society? Well, it's a very broad question, but I, I just 
want to emphasize that technology now allows us to know our readers so much better. I mean, in, when they used to turn up to the FT, at the railway station and buy the FT, you never knew who they were. You had maybe an idea when they were walking across the bridge or uh, to the city, but, but now you really know so much more about who they are, how they're consuming. So we're going to respond to that because we're, we're, we're serving our readers. We can do that better. Second observation is, and I've said this to all our journalists, technology is now disrupting and changing every, impacting every single business sector in society. And it's not just you know, technology in a narrow sense. It's technology upending the retail sector. It's technology upending the car, the auto, auto business, uh, auto industry, the self-driving cars. It, it, this, is, this is huge. So you can't, you've got to have journalists who can understand how technology works in order to cover those sectors well. And then, I, obviously, there are huge questions about privacy. We've heard a lot of, uh, we've seen, and rightly, a lot of commentary about, in the wake of the Snowden revelations, on national security and how, uh, what, what the intelligence agencies and others were doing in terms of accessing private information. But we've also got to see on the other side that the tech companies themselves have massive amounts of data about, on, on individual citizens and consumers. So how that impacts and explaining that is a big task for journalists. And just sort of following up on that, you, you talked about, was it the civic purpose? of journalism. Do you think there's, that is in a sense challenged by the fact that you are now more technology dependent, you're more dependent on these you know, digital intermediaries, these huge tech giants who perhaps don't have a, a civic purpose in the way that a news organisation might? Have you ever been to Silicon Valley and gone to <clears throat> Mountain View and told the Google people they don't have a civic purpose? Because Facebook. Yeah, last very long there. Facebook. Oh, they, they would. Okay, so I wouldn't necessarily share that view. I think they're providing a service too. But it's different in journalism. I mean, the civic purpose. Mm. There is such a thing that I believe in called public service journalism. And we are, we, we do, it's not just about holding power to account. It is also understanding, helping people to understand how an economy works, how government works. Mm. There's a public service purpose there. Uh, and also, we're part of a community. I think there's a, there's a danger if, if somehow journalists, I'm not saying they do, but if they ever thought they might mm. want to somehow float in the ether. Uh, no, they're part of the community, and they have a role in, in connecting to that community, mm. whether telling stories of... Um, of injustice, but also tragic stories, human stories. We all have that for that role. Yeah, great. Uh, let's try and find... There's the woman in the middle there in a sort of black and white stripey thing. Well, it is. <laughs> I'm Denise Barron, a a grad student in the social psychology department, and my question is about the new challenges of crafting a headline. Uh, you uh, talked. Uh, sorry, new challenges of crafting a headline. Oh yeah. 
And so you talked about the, the massive potential of trusted brands. Of course, the most dynamic element of your brand is, are the headlines that people are seeing every day, the dozens and dozens that you're putting out there. And you know, we all can pull up Twitter right now, and we can tell you which are going to be the most high-performing headlines. They're ones that are relatively vague or fear-inducing or um, angry, and yet that seems very contrary to the FT brand. So how do you mitigate those pressures of responding to trends, reading uh, what your readers want out of your information, but yet maintaining the brand that you have? You'd never have guessed she's from social psychology, would you? <laughs> uh, if we're shrill, we'll destroy or damage our brand. We are not going to chase clickbait. We're not just going to put Obama in the headline for all our top ten stories. Uh, we, we, you, you, we will get some headlines wrong, by the way. But, you know, if, if there's a story, if every, every story headline is um, dog bites man, we're, we're not really telling the full... So we've got to recognize the man bites dog story, too. You, you, you can be creative without being shrill. There will be... If you think about... During the, I'll just say one other thing. In the global financial crisis, we only used the word panic once in a headline, as far as I'm... Yep, and that was when the world almost melted down after Lehman Brothers. And I, I said, OK, you can use panic now. <laughs> <laughs> so we should really worry when, you ne- when we next see the word panic in the FT, shouldn't we? Yeah, yeah rush for the exit. Exactly, right. Let's um, should we try and venture at the back, because the mics are at the back, actually. Let's chap in the blue shirt there. Not quite sure you've got the right person, but anyway. Uh, Sonny, Sonny Tucker. Um, hello, Lionel. Um, looking to crystal ball, you have been doing a bit of crystal ball gazing. When does the FT cease to exist in print? Ooh. Yeah. Um, you know, Sonny, I'm, I'm really surprised in the age of transparency you didn't disclose that you're a former FT journalist. And you probably know the <laughs> sure, answer. Yeah. Until you joined a bank. (laughs) Uh, Print print is going to be around for quite a while. I I don't want to put a number on it, but if you think about, you're very kind in mentioning how to spend it, um, which is a, a very good magazine in editorial terms, not just a money spinner. Um, it's an award-winning magazine. I mean, it's, that is rich with advertising. And our newspaper still has, if you look at it, it's still got advertising in it. And we've got special reports backed by advertising. What we have done is reduce from 73% of our overall revenue, I, I believe, in 2005 was print advertising. It's now gone below 45%. If there's one of my colleagues here who's just going, no, it's completely wrong. I think it's below, it's below 45%. So you can see the way the business model has changed. But we don't want to give up on print. This is evolution, not revolution. 
it's, it's a big mistake to say, just leave it. It's also, by the way, print is a great marketing device. You know, it's pink, and people walk around with it. They read it on a train. It's worth something. Yeah. Right, it's... Uh go to the back. There's a lady in the middle there with her hand up about four rows down. Thank you. Hello, my name is Minji Lee. I'm a grad student in media and communications and I'm also a formal journalist from South Korea. Um, I have two questions. Um, you mentioned that the um, involvement of the audience engagement team in the newsroom is one of the biggest changes that the FT has had. Um, do you also have any structural plans to help the FT become a tech company in the future? And another question is that what do you think is the ultimate trait or value that can differentiate media companies from its emerging competitors like other companies or um, personal journalists? What do you think is the ultimate virtue that media companies should strive to protect? Okay, second, uh, you're not really allowed two questions, but you're a recovering journalist, so that's okay. Um, so, so media companies, for me, the most important thing is that the journalists are curious. I've got no time for people who say, we've read that story somewhere else, or it's nothing new, or it's quiet. Curiosity, having an open, curious mind, is really important. Now, on the, uh, just... How am I going to help the FT become a tech company? Well, it's not, that's, that's a matter for the leadership of the company as well, the CEO, the board. But uh, I do think that we in editorial have made an important step by having, and Rene is a, is a journalist as well as being a skilled technologist, you know, having people who are fluent in technology and putting them in the newsroom and connecting them with editors who are writing headlines, who are thinking about the new expressions of journalism, is very, it's healthy, it's good, it's a statement of confidence. What do we want to do next? Well, the fact is, we, we want to experiment with new forms of journalism and to use technology. We're not going to be the servants of technology. We're going to have an influence. We've got a seat at the table. But we shouldn't be, a, that, that's the key point, that, that these are, this is a partnership. It's not a master-servant relationship. I mean, one of the problems, isn't it, the media companies have had with technology is where, where it actually sits, isn't it? That I guess the FT is hiring more people uh, that are, if you like, called technologists. Um, th the problem has been how you integrate that, isn't it, into the newsroom? Do they sit next to you, or are they, are they half and half journalist, half technologists, or... You know. Yeah. Well, I, th I think we, I, he may be here tonight, but Sebastian Payne from The Spectator is joining uh, the Financial Times uh, in January 1. We can't wait to have him, get him in the building, because he's a, one of the most skilled technologists, uh, and he's got a proven record at The Spectator, but he's also a journalist. Mm. He was like me, a Sternfellow at The Washington Post, and that's, we quite like that hybrid. Uh, we, th we think it's even easier then for someone like that, and we have several now, who are in the newsroom. Um, but let me just tell you a story to, to illustrate uh, this, because it, it's quite revealing. Uh, when, I, when I was invited to become editor of the Financial Times, I, I thought about what do we need to do you know, to make an e immediate impact in the online world. 
And I also wanted somebody, a really good business journalist. So I approached Paul Murphy of The Guardian and said, I really want you to join the FT. Um, would you like to write a column? And he said, well, not really. I'd like to do something digital. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, I'd like to build up a small team and create something really new in terms of a, digit, a, a business blog with interactivity and all the rest of it. And it was bingo. Get him in. Introduce, if you like, a virus into the newsroom and show this group of people are going to do something different. And they're going to work with technology to produce a new form of journalism. So we've done that, and we've done it in various other ways. We've just hired one of the best uh, statisticians uh, who designed the Office of National Statistics website, the ONS, Alan Smith, OBE. Uh, you know, how many other news organizations have had OBEs? Well, anyway, um, that's very FT. But he's joined. He's going to be great. He is great. He's already here. So this is what we're doing. We're deliberately doing But it's a graft because what you want to do is make sure that people come in and they've, you know, they're, they're made to feel welcome. That's important. Great. Okay. Should we sort of walk down a bit now? Shall we? Let's come over on this side. Um, there's the woman there on this road just down here, please. Hi, uh, my name is Juana. I work in technology and financial services. Um, you mentioned that media agencies are looking for additional sources of revenue, such as uh, corporate-sponsored content, for example. Do you think DFT would ever change their business model to allow this kind of additional revenues? And if so, what kind of safeguards would you put in place to avoid conflicts of interest? Well, again, we, we would... Be, we would be open to having um, some, if you like, con what we call content marketing, i.e. that if, if, if a company wanted to produce a small video or, or uh, a campaign, we'd have it in there, but it would be clearly kind of sectioned off on the web. There would be, it would be different maybe... Um, fonts, so people could s clearly see it for what it was. But what we wouldn't do is, or, or we could, sorry, another way of looking at it is if a company wanted some kind of story to be told and they wanted FT journalists to do that and put it on site, we would not have people from editorial doing it, but we might have people who are skilled at writing, if you like, copywriters, elsewhere in the company. But then it, it would still be walled off. If you want to see how it's work, working, I mean, look at The Economist. But I, I just think if you do, if you go, if, because I'm not saying we, we, we are doing this in any big way, but if you're looking at this, you need to be really clear and transparent with the readers to show that this is not editorial copy. That's because that's, it's got to be separate. Okay. Um. Lady here, please. Marhaba. That's the Arabic, not the Japanese for hello. Uh, my name is Rima Mary. I'm doing a PhD in media. And my dissertation is on news framing in times of crisis. This is particularly interesting for me because, you know, when you're doing print media, you're doing discourse analysis. So where the title is and how the images are laid out on the print media 
is very important. And my question to you is, how when you're going online, are you able to transmit the same mess core communication messages and the same type of framing? Yani are the teams that are working offline working closely with the people online so that these messages for somebody who's doing critical media analysis are coming out somehow with consistent messages or the same core ideas from the print and, uh, and online? Uh, I just need to make sure I've understood that. So, so you're saying, just supposing we're right, reporting on a story. Yes. We're saying that just for, for example, the, the war in Syria, how we're covering that in print and online and the difference. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. How, how closely are these teams working together? Because from my experience, when I've gone online, yeah. I've seen things very differently than when I've looked at it on a paper yeah. where I'm looking where the things are situated and the font and different things. They don't appear in the same way. So sometimes the framing doesn't appear the same online and off offline. So uh, to what extent are the teams working together to make sure that these messages are consistent? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. Um, first of all, think about the online journalism as, if you like, the first cut on a like on a record or something. So I'm not saying that that expression will be crude or wrong or rushed, because if we do that, we'd obviously undercut the value of the journalism online. But it's it is the first cut. It's something that we may do in shorter form and then build around with some, 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 uh, uh, some extra data. And when I talked, by the way, about the story editor, um, story producer, rather, he, will t he or she will take that first cut in terms of the words and then add maybe data, pictures, whatever, and maybe ask for some video and then have it as a whole. Now, what we then do is derive from that, from those things, from those various bits of journalism, something for print. And I describe that as not the first cut. That's something which is more reflective. It may not have all the elements of the online story, but, and this is the crucial point, it will still have the same brand quality. It's very, and the judgments won't be different. So we're not going to have a story which one day says, uh, which in, on the first cut, cut says, Vladimir Putin um, has made a bold, uh, I should not go there, but, <laughs> <laughs> but let's just say the judgment on Russian intervention or the American intervention, Saudi or whatever, it will be the same as the newspaper. Otherwise, we're going to get like that. But as you said, it's a sort of qualitatively different experience, isn't it? That fantastic uh, feature that you did, I, th I think it was in your film on the ISIS oil yeah. industry, um, was you had it in your paper. Um, and it, it was fascinating how less of an experience it was than yeah. the extraordinary interactive data visualizations that you had online. You know, they're just as different... Feet, yeah, that's that's really, yeah, that's really important, by the way, what Charlie just said, which is, look, we can't do 360-degree deep d data on every story. But we are going to do some stories. We've got this week Beyond Banking, uh, which is look at the financial services industry after the crash, or ISIS Inc., which is describing the, 
the radical Islamic terrorist group, but it's the business side. It's like they're a corporation. And what are they doing in terms of seizing control of the oil and gas fields in Syria and actually doing deals, or the, the Syrian regime, the Assad regime, is, do, is, is having to rely on ISIS for supplies of oil. That's a really interesting story, but you can tell that in an incredibly interesting and rich, data-rich, image-rich form, which in, pa- in, in the paper, you can do it with a, gra- a graphic, a good graphic, and then have fantastic reportage, but it's, it's two-dimensional as opposed to three-dimensional. Yeah, I found when I was reading it in the paper, I kept pressing it to try and make it do, do things. Which, You're a sad person. Which is really sad, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this has been said before. Right. Um, should we move up there? Just to the chap in the grey... That's it. As Victor Mendez is financial journalism student at City University. Uh, Mr. Barber, have you perceived as FT editor that sometimes being uh, essential economic data could become an obstacle in order to report globally in business and financial journalism. What I mean is that economic data has a different meaning in depending on cultural and political context and that in order to report in this globalized world we need more skills that go beyond even languages or economic and business but cultural understanding in order not to confuse or to uh, repeat the stereotypes. Well, uh if you, say to, if you ask me, is the FT obsessed by GDP or GNP as a measure of an economy's success, the answer is no. Um, if you say to me, uh, did the FT, like many other newspapers, for too long concentrate on um, budget deficits in the run-up to the Eurozone sovereign debt crisis as opposed to current account deficits... I would agree with you, yes. But I mean, one of the things I tried to do is, is ensure that we have, and I'm kept honest in this by people like Martin Wolf, that we have a kind of critical mass of economists, trained economists who are at the FT, also with different views on the world, to make sure that we deliver probably the most authoritative uh, analysis, but have we got much to learn? Have we got things to do? Keeping up? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, should we come down here a bit as well, please? Um, lady there in the glasses, just there. Yeah, you. <laughs> um, hi, my name is Marie Shireen, and I'm an LSE alumni. Um, Well, you've mentioned a lot of things today, including technology and how it impacts uh, delivering of news and media. You've also mentioned the civic responsibility of journalism, which is a very interesting point. And at the same time, there was the question about uh, blogging, and you mentioned the need for specialist bloggers. Um, So bearing all those things in mind, together with the, the FT business model that you've presented, I want to ask if there is an offense strategy for citizenship journalism, if that is something that the FT is interested in, if it's something you are considering to somehow integrate. And I'm asking this because other media outlets are sort of embracing this trend and they're encouraging citizenship to become part of, of the reporting world. Does that have a place within the FT? And if so, what is the place alongside? Well, I, I would... Uh my initial response is that 
citizen journalism or citizenship journalism, as you describe it, for the FT, we are a specialist publication. So you need some um, enough knowledge to be able to write commentary, for example. But I mean, w- we open our website to comments on articles, and we have broadened the number of people. And I suspect when uh, Sebastian comes next year, we'll be looking at figuring out ways where we may want to open up and increase the interactivity with a potential readership around the world. If you're talking about reporting, I mean, I like, if somebody said to me, you know, I'm going to write you a piece about what it's like living in Athens in 2015 at the end of the most, you know, really difficult period where the economy has shrunk more than 10%, by the way, GDP, sorry. But, um, you know, then we look at it. And we, 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 because we shouldn't feel that we, we have a monopoly on wisdom. But at the same time, we don't want to just say, um, open up all the gates and say, anybody can write for the FT. Because we've got to make sure that what appears in print or online is, has a certain um, standards in terms of accuracy, context, quality. But pr- can we open up a bit more? The answer is yes, and if we look at the last 10 years, we have. Okay. Take this gentleman there. Thank you. Yes, um, I'm, I'm a digital subscriber to the, the FT, and uh, I use an ad blocker, and I assume... I assume I'm missing something. I'm sorry to say that in public, by the way. Okay, no, I'm I'm prepared to admit it. Um, I also look at Campaign, the trade journal for the advertising business, and almost every day there is an article there about how ad blocking is, you know, the coming threat, and that, as you say, more news is moving to mobile. Lots of things are moving to mobile and ad blockers are growing on mobile as well. So although you did mention um, ad blockers in your illuminating talk, uh, could you expand a little on how you see that as a threat, to the, a possible threat to FT revenue? Well, well when, I, when I mentioned the word ad blocking, uh, I did actually say for free news sites depending on digital advertising. So I wasn't so much talking about a subscription model like the FT. And, you know, I'm in charge of the words, not the ads. So I tread carefully here, but I suspect if you ask my colleagues, they would say, well, we, we do depend to a degree on digital advertising, but actually as a proportion of the overall revenue, it's important, it's growing, but it's growing from a relatively smallish base. I won't give you the numbers. So we don't want to be in a position where we are really dependent on one stream of revenue. I think it's really important, and we, we're going to be looking at this a lot over the next two or three years, to be thinking about new forms of revenue. And you know, I don't want to talk about that much tonight, but that is important, that you're not just dependent. 
That's why, you know, frankly, that's why some news organizations have got into trouble, because they were so dependent on print advertising. So do you think you might go down the Guardian route and set up a sort of FT dating service? <laughs> I'm busy. <laughs> that's right. Okay. Uh, let's go wandering up there again, please. Um, the chap there in the brown... Is it brown? The, this guy... No, no, that way. Make it going. Up, up on the right, sorry. There. So I'll come back to you later. Thank you. You can hear me. Yep. I would dearly like to ask your views on the BBC, but the real thing is that, according to this, your standards, but the real thing is many of my friends are frustrated at the media in this country because it's self-centred, man-orientated, and agenda-orientated, and it doesn't seem to have any respect for events. Would you care to comment? Sorry, it doesn't, doesn't have any respect for events and things happening in the world. Would you care to comment? Well, I th think I might as well go home. But, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I don't really want to talk about the BBC. You have important people running the BBC. It's a great brand. Happy to be um, associated in the same words, the BBC, in the sense that BBC is global. It's a brilliant brand. Is it perfect? No. You know, but it's the British Broadcasting Corporation. You know, I, I, I'd rather not talk about that. I think you present, if I may say, a somewhat dismal picture of the state. <laughs> you know, we have an independent, rather uh, robust, boisterous, raucous press. And we were, Charlie and I were talking about this earlier... If you compare the way the press and media has changed in this country compared to some of the American counterparts, we've been actually much faster to reinvent the newspaper's printed form, to go on digital, to go digital, um, in terms of mainstream media. Um, is it perfect? No, it's not. Um, have we got lots to learn? Was Levison a sobering experience? You bet. I spent three hours testifying. But I think things are a little better than you describe. I'll give you a subscription if you want. Yeah. <laughs> and let's, let's take the chap who we, we... There you go. Cut price. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you about the BBC, but... Uh, <laughs> but I don't, I don't work for the BBC. Why would you want... Well, anyway, even though my name is Hugh Edwards, I don't... <laughs> I am not the newsreader. Hmm. <clears throat> there's a lot of talk about privatising the BBC. Um, it's a trusted brand, it's worldwide, it's yeah. abroad, they think it's wonderful. But here, in, in, in large parts of Westminster, the Rothermere Press, the, the News International, they absolutely loathe the BBC. I'm concerned if it was privatised, the obligation to provide balance would disappear. It would end up in the Rothermere Press or, or, or other friends of the Prime Minister. And you could end up in 2020 with wall-to-wall government propaganda as we have with Russia today. Is that, am I being paranoid about that sort of thing? Um, marginally yes. paranoid, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, look, um, the Financial Times does not support the privatisation 
of the BBC, or as Lord Patton says, the BBC. <laughs> we think that the BBC is, is um, something which belongs to the <clears throat> fabric of this country. Things have to change, you know. We can discuss the parameters of those changes. And are you bothered but, at all about? Are you at all bothered about the BBC online, for example, internationally? Does that concern you at all? Is it cramping your? It doesn't space? cramp us, but um, if you looked at where the BBC website was several years ago, I mean, a lot of money was being poured into the. I think I can talk a bit about this. John Gap is in the audience. Uh, our chief business columnist. He's much more expert and eloquent than I am. What I would say is that the BBC was putting in way too much money into the online service, building up journalist capacity. That's a terrible word, but lots of journalists writing for online. And actually, compared, uh, you know, if you look at the threat, the competitive threat to regional newspapers, uh, was and is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a serious business. And the BBC can sometimes be a, an elephant... Uh, that, you know, whoops, I've just suddenly moved my right foot and uh, there's a couple of, you know, people got damaged. Uh, so I think that, that that online expression needs to be res- restricted, curbed somewhat. It's not for us, it's for also, it's particularly for people who are in the general news business. Now, to say that the BBC should be excluded from all digital expression, and that no journalist who works on a TV programme is allowed to blog, that's not serious either. I mean, of course they can. But they shouldn't be building up, putting millions and millions of pounds into an online business. Okay. We've got a bit of time. Is that right, John? Yeah. Two or three questions. Let's go to the very top there. Let's, Let's reach out there. Um, Hi. Um, I just wanted to ask a question um, regarding investigative journalism. Obviously, um, it's a very exciting time for on-demand news, um, but is this coming, um, is this suffocating investigative journalism? Just to give one example, if we take um, Kenya um, and the Westgate Mall, you know, um, all of the main broadsheets... um, you know, basically replicated press releases from the government, um, you know, reporting on a siege that was happening from Saturday to Wednesday. But actually, if anyone had done any kind of real investigative journalism, it only lasted for two days. Um, You know, if we look at Syria, where obviously access um, for journalists is, international journalists is very, very difficult. Um, And, you know, international journalists who do go into, you know, Somalia, Syria, etc., they're basically following a UN convoy um, because security is a risk. How much do you see this um, as a problem Well, I don't think it's quite true to say that all journalists go alongside UN convoys in, say, Africa. I I don't know. I'm slightly surprised by what you said about the reporting of the Westgate Mall uh, story. That's not quite how I remember it. But in general, are there places where you think hard before putting people at risk? Certainly at the FT, and we've, we've lost... Uh, we lost a journalist in Indonesia, in East Timor, sorry, not Indonesia, East Timor, um, in 1999, I believe, and that was a hard, hard blow. And, you know, he went there to cover an insurgency and 
he was shot in the back by an army unit and those people have not been taken, held to account. And that still, that hurts me, it hurts my colleagues. So you think hard about putting people in, in danger. On the other hand, you know, we have journalists who've been in Pakistan, which is a particularly tricky place. We have people who have been in Syria, our Middle East correspondent. Um, she's been reporting on ISIS. Uh, she's not been following UN convoys. We have people in East Africa where... Um, we have people in Nigeria. Uh, do, we, do we go far as Kano in the north? No. Do we have people who go well north of Abuja? Yes. Um, that country is half Muslim, so we want to be there. But you've got to weigh the risks. And you don't want, we're, not, we're not trying to be heroes here. But I think you're being a little bit a little bit harsh. And there are news organizations, you know, from Reuters to AP, and yeah, even the Daily Mail, who put journalists in dangerous places where they try their best to tell the stories of, of the risk and what's going on. Okay. Can we come to the middle there? Right in the middle. That's it, that line. Put your hand up, please, so you can... That's it. Hi, my name is Bhavan. I'm a student here at the LSE. I'm, I was a former Newswire journalist in Southeast Asia. I just want to ask you about your views on uh, your huge uh, foreign correspondence table. You know, do you see the FT continuing, expanding its, uh, its, 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 its international team? Or, you know, because obviously it costs a lot of money uh, you know, to, to maintain all these bureaus. And, uh, uh, and, and I think the trend has been for newspapers to downsize their overseas bureaus and uh, I just want your views on what value does it, do your foreign correspondents bring to the well, FT and its readers? One of the things I'm most proud of is that actually uh, the number of foreign correspondents, staff foreign correspondents has actually increased in the 10 years that I've been as ed- editor and I owe my colleagues uh, a debt of gratitude for that because they manage their budgets well and we thought creatively about how to do that but also the FT's singular competitive advantage, or one of them, advantages is that we have people on the ground around the world. And that gives us eyes and ears to report stories, and that's, that's part of our DNA. It's going to continue. So I'm very, very committed. I spent 16 years as a foreign correspondent around the world, 10 in America, 6. I've, I travel around the world in my role as editor, and it's, it's really important. It's not going to change one notch uh, as long as I'm in the chair, and I'm sure that will be true for my successors. Do you, is the emphasis going to change at all in the sense, you know, heading east more? No, I, I mean, you know, the uh, Nikkei have said um, FT is FT and Nikkei is Nikkei. So there is a recognition that we are different news organisations. At the same time, we're both committed to quality journalism. And there will be some things that we're going to do in partnership. And I can say here tonight that some Japanese journalists from Nikkei will be coming, three will be coming in January to work in the newsroom in various parts, on the news desk, uh, um, in terms of audience engagement, 
and the leader writing team, the editorial team. And we will be sending two journalists to Nikkei, one an expert in audience engagement and technology and another senior news editor to, to, to work and work with our colleagues. So you know, there will be that selective partnership, but you know, we, we will continue to have a balanced um, reporting network around the world. We're not... Yeah. Has anybody got a really, really good question? Because <laughs> we've only got, only got one left. So, now, only put your hands up if you've got a really good question. I can see people putting their hands down. That's really funny. <laughs> How depressing. Where should, where should we go? Let's, let's fly over here, actually. We've not ever been here that very much. You look like you've got a really, really good question. And woe betide you if it's crap. <laughs> no pressure. Go. No pressure. <laughs> I'm Louis Percent. I work in social media. Um, I had a question about the difference between print and online in terms of when you have the newspaper and print, you have one very complete edition. And online, a lot of people are finding you via a social link, for example, on Twitter, and they, they might be going to an old article, they might be going halfway through what would be the, the physical print product. So there seems to be this very different, different experience where you pick up the paper, you start at the front, you work your way through. Online, you can kind of end up anywhere. So as an editor who's kind of in charge of this whole brand and this whole edition, like what's your role in terms of online when this, your collection of content is very, very hard to control almost? Mm. Yeah, that's a good question. Mm. Well done. <laughs> it's the disintermediation. You just, uh, you know, you want a job? <laughs> um, just say yes. No, I, I think... This is Actually, all being recorded. It's all right. <laughs> Actually, the question wasn't that good. No, all right. <laughs> <laughs> no I, I think um, my job is, amongst a number of things, is to think about what the most important stories and themes are around the world in terms of business, finance, politics, and economics. And to have that in my mind about what are the things we really need to focus on. Then I've got some absolutely outstanding journalists who are going to be watching those stories uh, and then also thinking, and this is the big difference now compared to when I started in journalism many years ago on The Scotsman in Edinburgh in 1978. Uh, and even maybe when I t became editor, that we just need in the conversation about the stories and those, those big narratives, how are we going to present them in terms of online and social media? And that's where Renee and the team are important because they can show us what you can do in terms of the headline, in terms of the image, to promote, and we use social media to promote our journalism. And similarly, we've got people who, who will speak from the data side in the morning conference. We have a whole new set of voices that speak in the morning conference now, which didn't occur before. So it is, if you like, about walking and chewing gum at the same time. It is about thinking, well, this story is being told in this way, and we know what we're doing for print, but what about digital? And the difference, the big difference today, is that we start from thinking about the digital form first. 
And then we say, okay, at the end of the conference, so what are you doing on these pages? That's a big difference from where we were. So it's, it's, it's digital, perhaps even mobile first, then yeah. the website, and eventually yeah. the newspaper becomes a sort yeah. of souvenir edition yeah, it, of, the, that's a, of, of what else has happened. Yeah, that's, that's a positive thing. Yeah, it yeah. is a positive. Um, how much can you charge for souvenir editions? A lot more. That's the point. That's the point. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, Ladies and gentlemen, please thank Lionel Barber for fantastic evening. <laughs>